The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Will you? No. Oh, come now, John. Is that any way to greet your dear departed brother? Oh. Of course. Terrible thing, a gunshot wound. No. This isn't possible. Luckily, I didn't suffer. My heart exploded almost immediately. That's better. Well, we've got a lot of catching up to do, Johnny. Have you been since you murdered me? This can't be. You can't be real. Is that real enough for you? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 1st, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. We hope that today's show will be real enough for you. In fact, how do we know what is real and what is unreal? How can we know who to believe or what to believe, especially in these times of fake news, false news, misleading news, no news, establishment news, and official news? Who can we trust? Rest assured that both truth and reality actually do exist, and rest assured that there is an effective way to discover them. But you won't get to a truth if you're just expecting it to be delivered to you on a silver platter. Like anything of value, it takes a little knowledge and effort, and it doesn't come with guarantees. I'll be offering some handy tips, hints, and personal insights into this journey into reality while dressing it up with a few familiar controversies and debates that offer classic examples of unreality in political practice. On the other side of our show today, Justin Trudeau appears to have had some problems earlier this week dealing with a few realities of his own. And Robert, I understand that this latest round of Trudeau maniac (laughs) is on your topic of discussion today. That's true. The second part, I'll be talking about reality as well. No, really. Really? Yeah. And um, (laughs) the first part, yeah, let's just talk about Uncle Fidel for a bit because uh, that's been quite quite a debacle for uh, Justin Trudeau and... uh, it's probably lost him a lot of support, I think, from uh, a lot of people. Now, before we begin, we have to remind our listeners to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. So, Robert, what's happening with Trudeau? (laughs) The editors of the National Review had this to say just this week. Admirers of Fidel Castro around the world have one thing in common. They never had to live under his dictatorship. And that is so true. It seems that anybody who would admire Fidel Castro has absolutely no idea of the history of the man. Or if they do, they're deluded. Or worse. I think the recent death of Fidel Castro is a litmus test for evil. Considering his well-documented atrocities against the people of Cuba, his violations of individual rights, his murders, his destruction of the Cuban economy, his subjugation of an entire island state, his near attempt to start a third world war by allowing the Soviet Union to station nuclear weapons on its soil, 
We should easily be able to tell who shares his political ideology of death and who is against it by how they reacted to his death last Saturday. Now, top on our list and trending around the world for the most glowing eulogy of the Cuban tyrant (laughs) is, of course, Canada's own Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Now, ignoring the tens of thousands of exiled Cubans dancing in the streets following news of uh, Fidel's death, this is what Trudeau had to say for the record. Quote, It is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's longest-serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century, a legendary revolutionary and orator. Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. While a controversial figure, both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognized his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people, who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. I know my father was very proud to call him a friend, and I had the opportunity to meet Fidel when my father passed away. It was also a real honor to meet his three sons and his brother, President Raul Castro, during my recent visit to Cuba. On behalf of all Canadians, Sophie and I offer our deepest condolences to the family, friends, and many, many supporters of Mr. Castro. We join the people of Cuba today in mourning the loss of this remarkable leader, unquote. Wow. Wow was right. (laughs) Wow was right. Longest serving president. Well, you know why, Justin? (laughs) It's because he wouldn't allow elections. (laughs) It's almost as if Trudeau were saying, wow, this guy's really accomplished something. The people really love him. They kept voting him in for 50 years. There's so much wrong with that Uh, statement. Every sentence is a criminal admission. (laughs) He notes that he feels sorrow at the passing of this butcher. And what does that say of Trudeau, the prime minister? It shouts that he is either, like I said before, completely ignorant of the history of the dictator, which I personally believe is hard to imagine, no, it's not or that he shares the exact same philosophy as Castro. And the latter is the obvious answer and should come as no surprise. Since the first days of his campaign to become the prime minister, he has lauded the dictatorial powers of the government of communist China. He has perpetuated the myth that the no-choice, state-funded Canadian health care system is the best in the world, even though people have died because of wait times for critical surgery, and people cross the border to the United States typically every day for a simple MRI, which they can get on the spot in the U.S. instead of waiting weeks at home. You know, Trudeau, like his father, is a socialist. Fidel Castro was a communist. But, you know, the difference between communism and socialism is like the difference between murder and suicide. Either way, you end up dead. Justin Trudeau is glorified. Communist regimes reveal his true political ideology, his true stripe, his true colors, red. The only thing standing in the way of achieving a true communist state in Canada are the hundreds of year old traditions we inherited from Great Britain, our democracy, and our culture of Western values and individualism. Pierre Elliott Trudeau knew this. There was no way he could overthrow the institutions of a parliamentary democracy in one fell swoop, as his good friend Fidel did in 1959. No, the people of Canada would not have tolerated it. And they would not have participated in it. Instead, Trudeau, the senior, opted for a more Fabian path to totalitarianism. Bit by bit, he began to dissolve the ties we shared with Mother Britain. He abolished the imperial system of measurement, 
for the um, more European metric system. He enacted stricter gun controls when he was Minister of Justice under Lester B. Pearson's government. He made French an official language to be used alongside English, not just in government, which, by the way, I don't necessarily object to, but in the private sector. That's the totalitarianism. In the private sector, so that all packaging in Canada must contain both languages. Trudeau ran up the national debt and inflation like some South American tin pot ruler. A legacy, we, by the way, we have yet to fully recover from. And, and the list goes on and on. It's a slow, steady progress, whereas Fidel's was overnight. The point is, though, that it was the imposition of socialist-slash-communist reforms done gradually so that even today Canadians believe that our nationalized health care system is the defining characteristic of our country. I, I, I'm unbelievable. So Canada didn't exist before um, uh, they, they, they nationalized the health insurance industry in 67, 68. You not, know? not the Canada of their vision. No. That's the thing. You know, Justin Trudeau follows in the steps of his father. And, much to my amusement, there's a doubt placed on whether Pierre was actually his biological father or if, <laughs> whether it was Fidel. What? You should see the, the memes that people are putting up on Facebook and Twitter. They've got pictures side by side of Justin Trudeau and Fidel at the same age. And I tell you, boy, there are striking oh, similarities. Man. Mind you, I don't put any, any credence in that. <laughs> I, but, it, but it is a good joke. <laughs> So don't be surprised by Trudeau's love for El Comandante. His behavior is true to his political nature. Now, some of the responses to Trudeau's insensitive comment, this is from Marco Rubio, um, presidential uh, nominee for the GOP. Quote, is this a real statement or a parody? Because if this is a real statement from the Prime Minister of Canada, it is shameful and embarrassing, unquote. And I would agree. From Ted Cruz, quote, disgraceful. Why do young socialists idealize totalitarian tyrants? Castro, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, all evil, torturing murderers, unquote. Absolutely right, Mr. Cruz. Trudeau tried to defend his remarks as quoted in The Australian. Quote, on Sunday, Trudeau said the statement was simply meant to, quote, recognize the passing of a former head of state, unquote, of a country that Canada had longstanding ties with and not to gloss over (laughs) unflattering history. (laughs) (laughs) Unflattering history. Torture, murder, Mm. 1.2 million refugees, no freedom of the press, no freedom of speech. You know, of course he was the longest-serving president, as I said, Justin, because he ruled with an iron fist. Trudeau's remarks have become a running joke on Twitter under the hashtag Trudeau eulogies. I just had to kill myself over these. They're so hilarious. Conservosaurus wrote, We mourn the death of Vlad the Impaler, who spearheaded initiatives which touched the hearts of millions. <laughs> oh, spirited. This is from a David Wood. While controversial, Hurricane Katrina revitalized construction in New Orleans. Rita <laughs> Panani said, Although flawed, Hitler was a vegetarian who loved animals, was a contributor to the arts, and proud advocate of Germany. He was also a big advocate of green. <laughs> yes. Matt Latimer, today we mourn the loss of Hannibal Lecter, a controversial figure, but true gentleman who enjoyed having friends for dinner. And finally, Melissa Lantzman, Mr. Stalin's greatest achievement was his eradication of obesity in the Ukraine through innovative agricultural reforms. I like that one the best. (laughs) 
You have to think about that one. You get the picture, though? Yeah, yeah I sure uh, do. That's what the world now thinks of Justin Trudeau. What an idiot. In contrast to Trudeau's infamous eulogy, we have incoming President uh, Donald Trump's response. He tweeted, Fidel Castro was dead! Exclamation mark. <laughs> he didn't put a smiley face on the tweet, but an exclamation mark said it all. Yep. Perfect. Later that day, he elaborated with this. Quote, Today whirls the passing of a brutal dictator who opposed his own people for nearly six decades. Fidel Castro's legacy is one of firing squads, theft, unimaginable suffering, poverty, and the denial of fundamental human rights. While Cuba remains a totalitarian island, it is my hope that today marks a move away from the horrors endured for too long and toward a future in which the wonderful Cuban people finally live in the freedom they so richly deserve. Though the tragedies, deaths, and pain caused by Fidel Castro cannot be erased, our administration will do all it can to ensure the Cuban people can finally begin their journey towards prosperity and liberty. I join the many Cuban Americans who supported me so greatly in the presidential campaign, including the Brigade 2506 Veterans Association that endorsed me, with the hope of one day soon seeing a free Cuba, unquote. And once again, Donald Trump nails it. That was perfect. It was flawless. Identified evil for what it is. He pretty much stands alone, though, as a world leader, or at least as a world leader in waiting, who can correctly identify evil and refuses to be diplomatic when candor is called for. You know, other world leaders echoed Trudeau's remarks, but certainly not to the same degree. And the left-wing American media sided with Castro and Trudeau as well. Just like we identified during the election when they when they backed the corrupt Hillary, mm-hmm. quoting PJ Media here, on MSNBC, Andrea Mitchell insisted in a stock bio that Castro, quote, gave his people better health care and education, unquote. Boy, I tell you, Bob, it's always about the health care, isn't, isn't it? it though? They, they can slaughter millions, yeah. but as long as they get their free health care, man, don't matter. That was Germany. Yeah. Up until you know when. Again, from um, PJ Media, appearing live by phone, she soon trumpeted how Castro, quote, will be revered, unquote, for, quote, education and social services and medical care to all of his people, unquote. Along a similar theme in the an ABC special report during Nightline, Jim Avila maintained that, quote, even Castro's critics praised his advances in health care and, you guessed it, Bob, education. <laughs> Unquote. In a relatively tough report on Castro abuses, CNN's Martin Savage said in a pre-recorded bio piece highlighted how many saw positives, education and health care for all, racial integration. A meandering Brian Williams popped up by phone on MSNBC to ruminate and recalled how in his last visit to Cuba in 2015, quote, you see the medicine system they are very proud of, unquote. ABC's Avila went so far as to tout Castro, how Castro, quote, was considered even to this day the George Washington of his country among those who remain in Cuba, unquote. Unbelievable. And lastly, reminiscing about his high school years via phone on MSNBC, Chris Matthews asserted that Castro was, quote, a romantic figure when he came into power, unquote. And Matthews wasn't embarrassed to relay, quote, we rooted like mad for the guy who was almost like a folk hero to most of us, unquote. And that's from PJ Media.
Yes, the death of Fidel Castro only goes to reinforce what Bob and I have been saying for years about the left and the discredited left-wing media. They are made from the same cloth as was Fidel Castro. And that cloth, of course, is a body shroud. Well, my friends, we have done it. You have. And you, all of us. At last, this country can finally bask in the sunshine of a true democracy, a, a land where no man is better than the next, and there's equal opportunity for all, and respect for law and order. Right now, I am the law. Yes, but soon we'll hold free elections, let the people choose their own leaders, and you can voluntarily step down and return to your simple farming, and <laughs> what's about it, you look glassy-eyed. These people are peasants. They are too ignorant to vote. I know, but they have common sense. I am the ruler of this country. There will be no elections until I decree it. You're accused of killing over a thousand people in your term of office, of torturing hundreds of women and children. How did you plead? Guilty with an explanation. Bring her back online. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm sorry, I'm not feeling quite myself. You can lose the accent. Do you know where you are? I'm in a dream. That's right, Dolores. You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up from this dream? Yes. I'm terrified. There's nothing to be afraid of, Dolores. As long as you answer my questions correctly. Understand? Yes. Good. First, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? No. Tell us what you think of your world. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. That clip was from the new television show Westworld. Have you seen it yet, Bob? Not yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it I'm is. Glad it to is, watch it. It's quite good, and I and I recommend it. I don't know. I enjoyed where it's the original go. movie. Yes, with Yul Brynner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So did I. You know, a few years ago, I spoke about how the real battle in political philosophy is the individual versus the collective, or individualism versus collectivism. You know, we always talk, talk about fascism, communism, socialism, you know, environmentalism, y- you name it. Any of those isms, they all stand to one side of the political spectrum. The individual stands on the other. And I thought I might elaborate on that topic a bit by addressing at the, at the root why individualism is right while collectivism is wrong. With every analysis of right and wrong, there must be a standard against which to judge. We've talked about this before, and that standard, of course, is reality. Now, usually we just drop that word reality and and let it sit there believing that everyone understands what we mean by that. Then the truth, or reality, is, is, of course, that we don't all agree on what reality is. Or maybe we just think we know and we haven't given it much thought. You know, in a broad sense, there are those who believe, as Plato did, 
that reality is far greater than our senses can perceive. And then there are those who believe, as Aristotle did, that reality is real and that our senses are perfectly valid in perceiving it. Now, you might notice that we use the image of Raphael's School of Athens as our banner on Facebook and our, and our Twitter. And there's also a large picture of it hanging in our studio. At the center of that fresco, which adorns a wall in the Vatican, stand the figure of Plato and his student Aristotle. Now, Plato is pointing to the unseen heavens, while Aristotle has his palm facing down over terra firma. This image encompasses all of philosophy. In philosophy, Plato, Plato represents that which is unreal, that which cannot be sensed, that which is incorporeal, while Aristotle represents that which is real, that which can be sensed, and that which is corporeal. In epistemology, Plato represents the irrational, Aristotle the rational. Plato represents religion, Aristotle science. In political philosophy, Plato represents the collectivist, while Aristotle, the individualist. And Aristotelian believes that the mind of man impacts upon reality by means of his senses. There's no other way to detect reality, to gauge it, to experience it, to know it. It's through the senses we come to conceptualize and to theorize about our nature. For that Platonist reality is unknowable in total. Some parts of reality may be known, but not fully, and only and present themselves to man like shadows on the back of a cave wall. You know, you know the old uh, story from Plato, Bob, you know, a person sitting, looking at his shadow playing across the back of a cave wall while the fire is behind him, you know, and flickering flames. And to Plato, reality was behind the observer, mm -hmm. unknowable and cannot be known. While to Aristotle, of course, you know, but reality exists. Yep. It has an identity, and we can know it. Well, Aristotle is a scientist. He broke into various fields of science. He was almost the Galileo of his day mm. in that sense. You know, the Platonic-Aristotelian split in how to view reality is at the heart of the collectivist-individualist split in political philosophy, I believe. When I talk about reality in matters of political philosophy, I mean the reality of man versus the reality of the collective, the nature of man versus the nature of the collective. This is the reality of man as I see it. Man is an individual. Man is not a collective. Even when standing in a crowd, the individual remains. Man as an individual exists. He has identity. He is a rational animal. He is a volitional rational animal animal which must be free to make choices and to act on those choices in order to survive and prosper. No man is an island, but neither is he a mob. He is an individual who builds bridges with others for friendship and trade to satisfy both his spiritual and his material needs. It is also a reality of the individual man that he must interact with others for his survival. Man, by his nature, is gregarious. That's not to say that his gregarious nature implies any special rights to the collectives he might belong to, and it does not necessitate the use of force or compulsion in the interaction he chooses to make in order to survive and thrive. 
you know, people always point to that, you know, that they, they, they look at how well-organized an ant colony is and try to anthropomorphize that and say, we should be just as organized. If only we had a strong leader, we could organize all the That's individuals right. to act just like this colony and we could prosper. No, you're defying the nature of man. We're not an ant. Thank you very much, or an insect. Yeah, ants don't have self-determination. <laughs> no, they're not volitional. This is the reality of the collective as I see it. A collective can mean almost anything. Get two or more people together under any mutually defining characteristic, and you have a collective. The most common collective are made up of people sharing the same race. There are collectives of people sharing the same political ideology, or collectives of people who share a passing interest or hobby. The list of possible collectives is endless. The reality of collectives, of course, is that unlike individuals, they do not have a mind of their own. They do not have a life of their own. In point of fact, it's difficult to say that they even exist as nothing more than an abstract concept. For example, the collective Black Lives Matter exists only as an abstract concept in that it is a political movement. Not all blacks belong to the movement. Some non-blacks belong to the movement. Not all people in the movement share the same sentiment as to tactics to take to perpetuate the movement. The collective is made up of individuals who might join the movement one day, but leave the next. The movement still exists as a concept, but in reality, its constituents change until at some point in the future, it will cease to exist as its individual components drift away from it as their values change and the necessity of the group alters. And while the movement will finally cease to exist, the individuals, or at least those still alive, will continue to exist as individuals. That nature doesn't change. That's the reality of a collective. It's like shifting sand. It has no life of its own. It has no corporeal body of its own. It may exist for a long time, like, for example, the Catholic Church as a collective, or a short time, like uh, the Front de Libération de Québec, the FLQ, which was a small collective lasting only a very short time. The nature of the collective is ethereal, while the nature of man is substantial and earthly. The nature of the collective is that it has an indeterminate size and shape, while that of an individual man is distinct and finite. A collective does not and cannot think. A man can and must think. A collective is a concept, while a man is an actual. A collective does not necessarily need to exist or survive, while a man exists and must survive. Only an individual has the attributes, in reality, to necessitate rights in a political context. There are, therefore, in reality, no such things as collective or group rights. The nature of a collective does not necessitate any political rights. Not the rights of women or women, the rights of children, the rights of gays and lesbians, nor the rights of aboriginals, etc., ad nauseum. There's only a necessity, in reality, for the rights of the individual. And the beauty of individual rights is that it encompasses the individuals which make up every collective. All women, children, gays, lesbians, aboriginals, etc. Every constituent of every collective is protected under the pro political concept of individual rights. And as such, there's absolutely no necessity for collective rights or group rights. A collective right, by definition, is exclusionary. 
If you're not a member of a, of a particular group, you will fail to benefit from the so-called right guaranteed to it by government. While individual rights are inclusive, everyone benefits from individual rights, irrespective of whatever group they may belong to. So whenever I refer to a reality as being the arbiter of truth in a political context, it is to those attributes of the individual man made knowable by our senses and our reason that I'm referring to. The reality of the individual man existing as an entity which must survive in a political context is the standard by which we should be making all of our political decisions. It's just a pity that uh, it's most often not the case today. And Professor Jennings' calculations have established conclusively that the atmospheric pressure on Mars precludes any form of life higher than the one-celled amoeba or at least some form of jellyfish. Are you sure you're from Mars? Positive. All right. What's the atmospheric pressure up there? 17 pounds per square foot. Wrong. It says here... Stop worrying about it, Tim. On my word as a Martian, I am a Martian. Then how come you're not a jellyfish? I come from a good family. How much evidence do you need to believe me? You saw me crash in my spaceship. You know that I can read mine. Tricks, tricks, all tricks. It's, it's, it's like, well, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Fact, how do I know you haven't got me hypnotized? How do I know you haven't put me Tim, in the sun? it's impolite to talk to people with your back to them. I'm sitting here in the chair. Oh, well, how do I know you haven't got me hypnotized? Now, for all I know, you're not even standing in the same room. I could be standing here talking to an empty chair. Oh, I'm, I'm standing here talking to an empty chair. That's how I know this. I, uh, I only came up to find out if your Uncle Martin would help Angela with a report. Uh, can I see him? Not at the moment. I mean, he's, he's out, but I'll, I'll be glad to tell him when he gets back. Tell me what? Oh, there he is. I thought you said he went out. Yes, well, frankly, Mrs. Brown, I never know just exactly where he is. I mean, that's Uncle Martin for you. Now you see him. Now you don't. <laughs> you wanted to see me? Oh, yes, about Angela's report. I haven't forgotten. Tell her I'll be down in about ten minutes. Oh, that's so sweet of you, Martin. She'll appreciate it very much. Are you convinced now that I'm a Martian? Or do you still think I hypnotized you? Well... I had no chance to hypnotize Mrs. Brown. She didn't see me either. But how do I know you were in the room when she was here? Well, who do you think you punched in the eye? Topper? <laughs> Okay, you win. You're a Martian. What would have happened if I hadn't been there? What would you have done? Nothing. Like hell. I wasn't going to hurt her. I lost it, okay? Just... Let it go. Once. It could never happen again. Understand? She pushed me. She pushes everybody. Don't tell me you trust her. I certainly trust her to act in her own interest. If she doesn't watch our backs, we can't watch hers. How long do you think that'll last? What happens when it's in her best interest to sell us down the river? She won't. How the hell do you know that? Sometimes. You roll the dice on people. That's what we did, all of us, when we signed on this journey. You take what you get. We're all we have.
You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thanks to all our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world, which they can do on www.justrightmedia.org. And pretty well, our show, Just Right, is all about um, what is right, what is wrong, how do you know what's real? You know, that last audio bite we heard uh, came from the fantasy TV series, The Lost World, as did our show opener today. And until preparing for today's show, it never occurred to me how much one of the running themes in that series was so much like a major theme that ran with respect to Donald Trump in the recent U.S. election. In The Lost World, my real interest came from the very first episode, and, and it was based on the character Marguerite, played by Rachel Blakely. Marguerite is the wealthy financier who sponsors their voyage to the lost world of dinosaurs. From the very beginning, her character appeared to me to be the most principled person among the adventurers. She was both the fountainhead and the atlas in the tension between herself and her fellow adventurers. Happily, and very surprising to me, the characters remain true from the beginning to the end of the cancellation of the series. And in the series' overarching storyline, we discover that this, you know, self-centered, money and wealth-focused, selfish adventurer turns out to be a war hero and much more. No surprise. But throughout, it was clear that Marguerite was the one in charge and who always made all the tough decisions. You know, yes, she was the self-centered, money-focused person and acted in her own self-interest, but never at the expense of the others, much to their constant disbelief. And no matter how many times she demonstrated motives far outside of those interests and goals, her personal ones, the others nevertheless continued in their distrust of her and never changed their image of her being this greedy capitalist adventurer. And I know that the average viewer would have seen her in the same light. The point is that her true character and virtue was evident from the outset, even though the first thing we see her do in the series is shoot and kill, quite nonchalantly, a man who has been hired to kill her. What is the first thing she does? She pulls a Donald Trump. She tries to negotiate with him by offering him a higher price. And when he refuses, she says, well, okay, bang, and he's on the floor. Marguerite was there, Donald Trump, outrageous in her drive to succeed, and most often the one who saved everyone from their own follies of various sorts. She pushes everybody. I trust her to act in her own self-interest. What happens when it's in her best interest to sell us down the river, as we heard in the clip there? So what is the proper resolution with regard to people acting in their own self-interest or at the expense of others? That very issue arose on last week's show with respect to Donald Trump when he accused the Democratic Party of playing uh, a a zero-sum game. And this is what was mentioned by Salim Mansour. Remember he called Obama and the left are the zero-sum people. I win, you lose. Trump is the positive-sum person. You win, and therefore I win, we all win together. We didn't get into the dynamics of this contrast last week, but it must be acknowledged that in both the zero-sum game and in the positive-sum game, the motivating factor is always self-interest, that thing which is always associated with greed and in particular with capitalism. Self-interest is a universal motivation, whether rational or irrational. So here's the dynamics of the contrast we have to be aware of. Politically, collectivist environments allow irrational self-interest to dominate. Interests that are always disguised as some sort of altruistic concern for others or in the name of equity and fairness and transparency. It's not for me I'm doing this. You know, you hear that all the time. 
It's a logical loop that has no resolution because it can't escape the basic axiom of self-interest. Even when people are, are acting primarily in the interest of another, then it's in the other self-interest that, that is being served. So to every giver, there has to be a receiver. Both act in their own self-interest despite pretenses otherwise. So the greater social and political question is this. Do you want to live in a society where self-interest benefits the greater good and is unable to cause harm to others? Or in a society where self-interest is always exercised at someone else's expense? Economically, the first is a wealth creator, while the second is a wealth destroyer. Politically, the first one represents freedom, the second tyranny. And the evidence is absolute. The greater the degree of a nation's individual freedom, the greater the standard of living of all citizens in that jurisdiction, rich and poor alike, in every, you know, it, it is in every respect, from wealth creation to quality of life and all that it has to offer. Now, Robert, you and I and a few other people got together a few weeks ago for a Saturday morning breakfast, and apparently we seemed to be among the few who were not overly surprised by the Trump victory. And uh, we were asked a very interesting question by one of the people there. And hello, Marg. <laughs> and she asked, how can you tell when you're, when you're getting the truth or facts? How did, how did you and I know that the reports about Donald Trump were false and which ones were true? How is it possible to tell if you're really looking at the truth? And, you know, it could occur to me that questions like this usually come from very principled people. People with some relatively clear idea about what's right and wrong, because if they weren't, that way, they wouldn't care about such questions, right? Particularly in the field of politics and governance. And that's the first truth they have to confront. The truth may be an irrelevancy to the ideology of any left-oriented philosophies or objectives and thinking. As I've pointed out before, facts are simply facts, but the truth that binds facts together is the story or the narrative that one arrives at in assessing one's available information. Donald Trump expressed a truth, if not too many facts, when he argued that America has too many regulations and restrictions that needlessly tie the country down. Now that same truth was expressed on our show last week when Salim Mansour brilliantly compared America's dilemma to the story of Gulliver and Gulliver's travels. That was something. Mm -hmm. Both Trump and Salim expressed the same reality in two different ways. But to demonstrate how subconsciously and consistently those on the left avoid reality, consider this exchange between two Facebook posters on our site as a result of our show last week, Gulliver's Travails, as we called it. Kim M. writes, I literally just said the example of Gulliver represents the USA just yesterday, being pinned down by too many unnecessary and ineffective rules and regulations. As each bad one gets cut, it eases the heavy lifting. Each cut helps to better lift our broken economy. Lift enough, and we just might see enough. See our growth rise above 2% GDP for the first time in over eight years. The producers need a break, and immoral lawmakers need to take a rest. Turnabout days are finally here. Good morning, America. To, and, and you replied to that great minds think alike, if I recall. Just a short, yeah. just a short comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then to that very insightful comment was posted this response by Bruce. Quote, the right wing is only capable of metaphor, incapable as it is to describe reality. Wow. Wow. It just, <laughs> just does listen to the show. That's the only problem is that people look at these Facebook posts. But, but, but you didn't have to. You just had to read Kim's comment, and it was perfect description well, of, of course, reality. Well, of course. Sometimes they don't, they don't even read the, uh, the post. They yeah. just look at headlines and stuff like that and get an overall impression and think they can chime in with something. I think it's more than that. I think he's a lefty because he targeted the right right off the bat. 
You know, you, oh, everybody on the right can't describe reality. That wasn't a comment about reality. What, was, what he was doing was trying to dismiss the right, and I think he made, made kind of a fool of himself. First, you'd have to be pretty foolish to not have understood what Facebook poster Kim was saying. That was extraordinarily clear. But Bruce's assertion revealed an incredible, I can't think of anything else but stupidity, quote, metaphor is incapable of describing reality, end quote. Well, I've got bad news for you, Bruce. Metaphor is a high-level abstraction, capable only to critical thinking minds, which is exactly why it is true that great minds think alike, because great minds are rooted in reality and reason and are therefore, I hate to use this word, but destined to think alike. <laughs> Concrete-bound mentalities, which are to be found predominantly on the left, are incapable of abstraction which in turn makes it difficult for them to relate to the greater reality outside their own field of vision. And then something worse happens. They become frustrated and angry at a world they do not understand because all they can understand is the immediate concrete bound into unintegrated facts around them, which they mistakenly call reality. So how do we know what to believe and who to believe and what's actually true? Now, of course, answering this question is not something that you can adequately address in the space of a few minutes and is, in fact, much of what we are doing with almost every broadcast of Just Right. But since the question was rather pointed, we can at least outline some of the bare essentials uh, of at least how I decide what's true or not. You might want to toss in some of your own situations, Robert. I could easily summarize the media situation. Don't believe anything <laughs> written by the leftist progressive media. Just about everything they write about politics is wrong, even if it's factual. The left is rooted in unreality, as you keep saying, Robert, and therefore all ideas founded on that unreality are equally unreal. So here's some of my advices. I don't know if you want to add any more, Robert, but my starting point would be don't be afraid to say that you don't know. Don't be afraid to be wrong, because if you're wrong for the right reasons, you're still ahead of the game. Another thing I do is I consider the source, credibility, reliability. What's fake news? What's real news? What's a real editorial? A good rule to follow? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But what if the source is intent on fooling everybody constantly? <laughs> Don't listen to them. Consider finding an alternative source until you find one or more that are trustworthy and reliable. Not merely that, that just agree with your viewpoints, because there are a number of sources I trust even when I disagree with the perspective based on past experience with those sources. Like there's some lefties that, whose, whose stories I agree that are factual. I just might not agree with their interpretation of them. And never rush to conclusions publicly. Have all of your suspicions and doubts you want, but use them as your litmus test against which all the known facts have to fit logically. And another, another rule I follow is never assume that majorities are right and minorities are wrong. Another one is, does the narrative you're getting from your sources make sense? Are there too many contradictions, inconsistencies, other facts that don't fit the narrative? You know, all, the, all of the key arguments about climate change as they're being promoted on the political stage do not make sense when weighed against known scientific principles and methodology. For example, I found uh, as a contradiction Trump's maladjusted persona versus his seemingly well-adjusted family and the people around him and the things that the people who knew, knew him were saying. It was completely in contrast to what the left was saying. 
there was also the irrelevancy. Some things are irrelevant. Some facts you don't want to know of what Trump said in the past that related to his business ventures or the mindless and clearly untrue assertions about his racist, sexist, egoist character. That's just nonsensical. And yet it was a major factor in assessing the, credi the credibility of each side. And anyone listening to my commentaries about Barack Obama when he first took presidency will recall that I found him to be an entirely un-American president. His stated vision of what America was about was in diametric opposition to everything I knew America was about, so I wasn't surprised by anything that he did. That one was so easy to figure out because Obama said it so clearly. But it wasn't clear to a lot of people. It was clear only to those who understand which ideas lead to which consequences, because those are truths that never change with time. So I guess you could say, learn how to spot the rot, as Lord Christopher Monckton taught us when we interviewed him a few years back. Anything else that you might add to that, Robert? Or you? You've covered a lot of bases, Bob, especially educate yourself and, and find out for yourself because in this day and age, there's so much bias in the media, both left and right, that it's really hard to get any accurate picture without listening to a lot of sides and then going do some research on your own. And it doesn't take a lot of research, like you said, with, uh, for example, climate change. All you need is uh, an inconsistency. Uh, you know, yeah, one they, fact that sure. stands out that doesn't fit the model for you to, to question the entire model. It's interesting because another way of, of doing it, too, is if you don't have the time to do all the work yourself, find somebody, some, find a columnist, a, 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 you know, a commentator that you generally trust who's come through for you each time. And then you can save yourself a lot of work. <laughs> we do that. We do that ourselves. Oh, and yeah, sometimes sure. we consult people who are, who are more knowledgeable than we are, of course, that we have them on as guests. But, you know, another thing, and, and this is going to sound maybe like quitting, but it's not. We're in this business of political philosophy, of trying to understand what's going on out there and the issues of the day. But the, the man on the street, you know something? You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be an expert in everything, and you really don't have to even care about some of the issues that are out there. You know, you've got a life to live. Don't get bogged down in all of the fear-mongering that, that you hear on the radio and television. Live your life, and when you find an important issue you think that it is going to impact your life, then do the research. Take it even a step further, Robert. You know, here's a real truth that many people might ha find hard to accept, but until they do, they might always be in the dark. And that is that in politics, facts very rarely matter except to a very small handful of people. That was why the Hillary election team kept doing fact checks on Donald Trump during the election. Yes. And that to me was a red flag that they were trying to distract voters from what Trump was actually saying in metaphor. Sir Humphrey. Yes, Bernard. I wondered if I could have a word. Yes, Bernard. Uh, with uh, both of you. Yes, what about? St. George's. What now? Well, the PM seems to be completely in the dark. Good. Excellent. <laughs> anything else? Well, I wondered if there was anything he doesn't know. Well, I hardly know where to begin, Bernard. <laughs> uh, no, I mean anything important. Well, he has the Foreign Secretary to tell him. Uh, yes, I know, sir. He seems to think the Foreign Secretary doesn't know the whole story either. I should hope not. <laughs> Are you implying that the Prime Minister ought to know what's happening? Well, he, he is the Prime Minister. Yes, Bernard, but it's simply too dangerous to let politicians become involved with diplomacy. Diplomacy is about surviving until the next century. 
Politics is about surviving until Friday afternoon. <laughs> there are 157 independent countries in the world. We've dealt with them for years. There's hardly an MP who knows anything about any of them. Show them a map of the world. Most of them have a job finding the Isle of Wight. <laughs> Surely politicians can't be that ignorant. Uh -oh. <laughs> Very well, sit down, Bernard. Where is the upper Volta? Um, What's the capital of Chad? Um, what <laughs> language do they speak in Mali? Um, Who's the president of Peru? Um, <laughs> what is the national religion of Cameroon? Um, Bernard, huh? you should stand for parliament. <laughs> If it's a democracy, shouldn't people sort of discuss things a bit? Well, of course, full discussion. And shouldn't they have the facts? Of course not. They don't want them. Facts complicate things. All that the press, the people and their elected leaders want to know is who are the goodies and who are the baddies. The problem is that the interests of Britain nearly always involve doing deals with people that the public think are the baddies. And not helping the goodies occasionally when it doesn't help us. So we avoid discussion of foreign affairs. Or rather, we keep all discussion inside the Foreign Office. Then we produce one policy for the Foreign Secretary, which represents our considered view. And he can act upon it. No options? None. No alternatives? None. What if he's not satisfied? Well, if pressed, we look at it again. And come up with a different view? Of course not. We come up with the same view. <laughs> but what if he demands options? Well, it's obvious, Bernard. The Foreign Office will happily present him with three options, two of which are, on close inspection, exactly the same. And plus a third, which is totally unacceptable. Like bombing Warsaw or invading France. <laughs> Better still, we occasionally encourage the Foreign Secretary to produce his own policy. Then we tell him that it will inevitably lead to World War III, perhaps within 48 hours. I see. Uh, I'm sorry to appear stupid, but... Oh, perish the thought, Bernard. <laughs> But in my experience, ministers are somewhat concerned about the effect of policy on domestic political opinion. Now, our system doesn't seem to allow for that. Of course not. We take the global view. We ask what's best for the world. Well, most ministers would rather you asked, what's the Daily Mail leader going to say? Oh, Bernard, we can't have foreign policy made by yobbos like Fleet Street editors or backbench MPs. Or cabinet ministers. Or cabinet ministers. <laughs> we take the right decisions and let them sort out the politics later. Wow, if you want to experience some real truths about politics and democracy, you just can't find a better TV series than the Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister series back. It was produced back in the 1980s. Frightening how nothing's changed. Right? Nothing. Nothing. It, it applies today. You, that could have been written today or for tomorrow. Now, the truth is a handful of people who actually run the government do what they think is right in their considered view, as we heard Humphrey say. Considered meaning informed, that they know what they're talking about. And the politicians have to work through the imaginary fantasy of direct democracy, which in practice would really be a nightmare more than a fantasy. In fact, the very idea of all the people voting to do this or that in government is really a bigger fantasy than the lost world itself. And that subject of how democracy actually functions brings me to this following report that I as yet do not believe even if it is true. Remember what we just heard in that conversation from Yes Prime Minister. Electoral reform, apparently, has been put on the back burner. 
by the same liberal government that promised it in the last election and which has been actively pursuing that course since the election. Got this addressed to my attention earlier this week from CTV News, Monday, November 28th, quote, No electoral reform until enough Canadians want it, Monsef says. Reports Laura Payton, Dem- Democratic Institutions Minister, Maria Monsev says she hasn't yet found enough support to change how Canadians elect their MPs and won't move ahead with electoral reform without it, end quote. And I'm thinking, wow, it almost sounds like they've wisely dropped the idea of ending first past the post. But do you believe it? I'm not saying it's not possible, but at this point in time, I don't believe it. Not for a minute. Listen, to, listen carefully to this from the same report. Quote, we're committed to this initiative, but we're not going to move forward unless we have the broad support of the people of this country for whom we are making this change, Monsev said, end quote. Now listen carefully again. Quote, the government is launching another phase of its consultations next month with an online survey and a mail out to Canadians encouraging them to participate, end quote. And that is when the government will be able to say that it can go ahead with its committed initiative. This has been the Liberal government's plan since the very beginning, including the mail-out survey, so none of this is anything new, except for the announcement that there will be no electoral reform. (laughs) Now, what did we learn from your lesson on on Trudeau's comments on Castro, Robert? Basically, that Trudeau supports dictatorships, right? Because he thinks like they do. Now, numerous have been the editorials and commentaries with headlines like the National Post September 23rd editorial, quote, cozying up to China's dictators, etc., constantly about Trudeau. But another great clue about Trudeau's leaning away from proper democratic principles is his support for electoral reform. The more to the left someone is, the more in favor of something like proportional representation they will be. I know you're not supposed to mention this, but, you know, Hitler was elected this way through PR. I've already spoken at length to my opposition to proportional representation and my support for what we have now. It's called first past the post. So my objective today in discussing PR is not to argue first past the post versus PR, but to offer it as an example of unreality in politics. For that, we don't need to compare it to anything, merely to judge PR on its own merits. The idea of Proportional representation is oxymoronic. It's a completely collectivist notion, totally divorced from reality. Ask yourself this question. What is it that people are referring to when they say our system must be proportional? What do you think of when they say proportional, Robert? That proportion of the votes that went to one party versus the proportion that went to another. Okay, so you're talking about votes. Yes. See, I I think... Most really don't know, but they believe that they're referring to one of three possibilities. I think you almost mentioned all of them. They're referring to votes, they're referring to political parties, or they're referring to candidates. Would you agree? Uh, you can refer to any of them. Yes. So let's look, at the, let's look at them differently. Let's look at the candidate possibilities under PR. Suppose there were no political parties and just independent candidates, each with his or her own view of how things should be governed. What would PR look like under a party-less system? How would you see it working? Any, any idea? I don't know how that would work. Interesting, because it doesn't. See, already you're hitting a, an unreality. Suppose you had 10 candidates running in one riding and only two in the next one. Under the logic of PR, everyone running would automatically win proportionately, right? Sure, you might have an arbitrary cutoff. Again, how would you measure that? How would you do it? 
So in a two-candidate race, one candidate, the winner gets 70% of the vote, the other, the loser, gets 30. The loser would still share in 30% of the political power? What the heck does that mean? PR can only work with political parties because then the unfortunate thing about PR is that then, then the parties actually pick the candidates and you're not voting for a candidate or a person. Correct. And that's the only way it can work. And you just saved me a lot of time until I can move on to the next part now. <laughs> okay. What would PR look like under a party system? Well, the proportionality would be based not on the number of votes of any particular individual candidate, but on the number of seats each party would have relative to the total number of seats of a given political party. We don't vote for parties, we vote for people. Assumably, a party-based PR system would still operate on first-past-the-post system within each riding or constituency, and the proportionality would be awarded on the basis of seats won. Or you could just count the votes and have the parties, you know, portion seats. That's another insane idea. Government would become mob rule. Ironically, it removes all the power from the citizenry and places all of the power in the ruling party's control. Political parties are comprised of individuals but are founded on a set of principles or ideas that the party represents. Again, it's about representation. PR places party politics above mem members of provincial parliament. Every political promise would become worth even less than they are now since it would be impossible for any individual party or candidate to deliver any measurable or accountable results under PR. Who would you hold responsible? Any ideas? There would be no responsibility. You couldn't. So voting is mere process based on consensus according to a pre-established set of rules consented to. So be careful what you vote for when you're always voting against. You might end up with the same thing or something worse. Which brings me back to socialism, communism, fascism, and the progressive ideologies you were talking about earlier, Robert. These are not compatible with democracy. And that is the reason that more and more people are feeling that their governments are out of control. Because they are. They're out of their control. Those forms of, of governance, socialism, is not compatible with democracy. You've lost your, the power of your vote. But I don't vote for those things, you say. I vote for liberals. I vote for progressive conservatives. I vote for new Democrats. I vote for Greens. I don't vote for all of those isms. What happens under PR is eventually the voting options shrink to the point when the final winning dictator is, quote, elected in the final count. You know, one man, one vote, one last time. <laughs> so, you know, no nation has ever voted for freedom. And that includes the United States of America. They fought for it. When people vote today, the only choice they have from all of their possible electoral choices is less freedom in some way, shape, or form. Until somebody or some party arrives on the scene that would actually offer the voters a true democratic option, one for freedom, then there's no other possible direction to vote towards but away from freedom and democracy. Now, it would be nice to believe that Trump represents a possible slowing or turnaround in this majority rule trend, but I'm not holding my breath on that one either. And it's not Trump I'm blaming for the trend, even if he gets swept up in it. I'll leave that one for our listeners to decipher as we invite them to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Meeting, I want a triple scotch. Oh, as bad as that. Why? 
Apparently, the financial crisis is much worse than we thought. All the Cabinet have got to make cuts in their spending plans. Bernard, would you like a scotch? Oh, yes, sir. Could I have a large one, please? Oh, another triple. Bernard, Humphrey should have seen this coming and warned me. I don't think Sir Humphrey understands economics, Prime Minister. He did read classics, you know. <laughs> well, that's a friend. He's head of the Treasury. Well, I'm afraid he's at an even greater disadvantage in understanding economics. He's an economist. <laughs> can't the Cabinet see they've got to be cuts? Well, they can see they've got to be cuts in other departments, not in their own. So this morning you ordered a clamp down? I can't order anything, darling. I'm only the Prime Minister. You're in charge. No, I'm not. A leader can only lead by consent. Consensus. That's democracy. So who is in charge if you're not? Well, nobody, really. Oh, exactly. 